You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey out there in Archaeology Podcast land. This is your host for episode 71 of the Rock Art Podcast, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. You're going to hear from Trudy Angel. She is head of the group that leads us down into Baja, California, the Grand Canyon of Mexico. Welcome out there in Archaeology Podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're revisiting a remarkable topic that we've uh, tried at various times to begin to scratch the surface per se, and that's dealing with some of the largest and most remarkable prehistoric paintings in the world, just to the south of us, out of California, in Baja, California. They sometimes call it the Grand Canyon of Mexico on the peninsula in the Sierra de San Francisco. And we're honored and blessed to have uh, Trudy Angel, who has been uh, saddling south and running tours and spending a remarkable amount of her lifetime uh, intimately connecting with the land, the landscape, and its tremendous treasures. Trudy, are you there? I am here. And thank you, Alan. And uh, good to be back again. Well, God bless you. I'm, it's, it's so exciting to have you. Well, I guess the California Rock Art Foundation is going to have a few tours <laughs> with you, Trudy. And uh, this is going to be uh, rather interesting. I, I hadn't anticipated having the number or character of these tours, but it sounds like they've been uh, well received. And uh, certainly, why don't you give us a little, little uh, word picture or some snapshots about some of the upcoming tours? 
So, so far, a few people have traveled with us from California Rock Art Foundation over the years. And the first was an adventure with Alan and our friend Eve Ewing down into the, well, we did a big long loop trip and also a trip with the folks out from from England as well. From the Bradshaw Foundation, one of the uh, most well-known and prestigious rock art research platforms, digital platforms in the world. And God bless them. That was exciting. Yeah. So over our trajectory of working with craft and and, uh, combining different tours, it's been really fun. We've taken groups, uh, craft groups into a very remote area, into Paral Canyon to see Serpiente Cave, and then down into the Santa Teresa Rock Art Complex down in Santa Teresa Canyon in the heart of the Sierra de San Francisco. And so this time, Ryan Gerstner and also Christine Grimaldi, the um, executive director of CRAF, and uh, some others who have been on some of our previous trips are all ready to ride into the small rancheria area of San Gregorio in early March. So we have four trips kind of back to back. And there was so much enthusiasm and has been so much enthusiasm and continues to be for these trips. And so we we just kept adding and adding until we have now four trips in the month of March. And I am really looking forward to heading into the canyon for the very last trip of our craft season because Eric Ritter is going to be joining us on that one. And I've heard so many things from you and Eve Ewing and other people over the years, and of course, reading some of his rock papers. Well, Dr. Eric Ritter was uh, got his uh, PhD on uh, studies, archaeology and prehistory and rock art on Baja. And I was on one of his earliest you know, forays out there when I volunteered as a, as a youngster, a little baby archaeologist. And, uh, you know, that was the first time I was in Mexico and first time I was in Baja. And I was smitten. I was just taken aback by the remarkable nature of the adventure, the beauty and this, the everything about it. And so Eric has continued throughout his lifetime, probably about 40 years or more of extensive research publications and continued studies on uh, the indigenous people, the ethnography, the archaeology, and certainly the rock art as well. Uh, He is probably considered one of the foremost researchers and scholars on Baja in the world. So you've got a a treasure, an absolute treasure at your fingertips. And he's also a very nice guy. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've heard many things that uh, he and his wife are coming. And also, we have a few other spaces that are filled on that trip already. But that is one of the trips, and it is from March 26th as the arrival date in Loreto until April 2nd as the departure date from Loreto again. And we'll be doing four days in Canyon Santa Teresa. 
with mm-hmm. the Cueva La Pintada, Cueva de las Flechas, and several other pretty well-known rock art sites in that area that we'll be visiting. So the weather has been perfect to run oh, tours. We had a little bit of rain on one trip last week, but just enough, a few hours to make the make the canyon look beautiful. And it's always gorgeous in that canyon. It's wondrous. It's a wondrous time of year because of the because of the weather and because of the beauty of the canyon, right? Yeah. 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 So so I'm looking forward to being on that trip as well. And there are other trips that uh, Ryan, both Ryan Gerstner will be representing Kraft on there mm-hmm. and then Christine Grimaldi. And we'll so we'll be doing one more trip out into the Sierra uh, to the northern part of the Sierra into the San Gregorio Canyon, which has some very interesting sites. And then two trips into the, we have a space on one of the trips into the Santa Teresa Canyon on March 18 to 25. Fantastic. 18 to 25, or excuse me, 12 to 12 to 19. We'll have a trip the 12th to the 19th mm-hmm. of March going into Santa Teresa Canyon. Another one the 18th to the 25th of March going into the San Gregorio Canyon to the north. And then again, the final trip of the season with Eric Ritter will be on the 26th of March until April 2nd. Fantastic. And so people can contact me at Tour Loreto, that's T-O-U-R-L-O-R-E-T-O, at AOL.com in order to uh, see about signing up for these last few remaining spaces that are available on the craft trips this spring. Fantastic. Well, that's rather remarkable. You know, we've we've talked a little bit about the great mural rock art. But I think on, on this particular opportunity, I'd like to talk about maybe a few things about what we know about the paintings and the native people, how we know a little bit about them. One of the things that uh, is very helpful in terms of knowledge of this particular piece of geography is that uh, the uh, fathers were there rather early, meaning these... Uh, these missionaries, and also there were, they were interested in describing and characterizing the indigenous people in a rather objective way. And there were uh, linguistic studies that were done of the native people. And uh, one of the things we learned was that uh, there is an unbroken line of related languages called Kachimi or Kochimi. And uh, that exists in the central Baja Peninsula, which is in fact uh, coterminous or correlated synchronous with this great mural rock art. For that reason, and because it appears to be of great time depth, we believe that the ancestors of the indigenous people, known as the Kochimi, were in fact the likely artisans of these remarkable paintings. Have you... uh, reflected and thought about that? Has that been something that you've uh, understood over the years? 
Yeah, that's one of the theories. There are writings that discuss that it was that the Cochimí themselves, when the missionaries came into the area, they actually claimed that they did not do those paintings. There were other ancestors before them. But surely the traditions and the rituals of the Cochimí that has been documented, that, that was documented very by Miguel del Barco in the area of Loreto, and others have some of the same characteristics of the the Cochimi rituals of the time. So the paintings of the half black and half red and human figures. And these figures that are in the canyons and on these rock faces are just amazing. You can likely not find very many places where there's such a high concentration of this animation in the rock art and human size, greater than human size, greater than the animal size figures running across the walls of the cave. And it's so stylized. It's completely stylized in the whole Sierra de San Francisco. Just very interesting concepts of who might have done that artwork, particularly in this one concentrated area. Yes, and you're exactly right in terms of looking at the stylization and the uh, subject matter and how that all works. One of the things I learned from Eve Ewing, who is one of my mentors when it comes to understanding the rock art of Baja, Eve is um, a remarkable published author. She also did her own documentary film on uh, the indigenous people and mainly about the about the people that were were the cowboys, the uh, cowboys and the um, other individuals who lived down there and uh, their lives. But what she uh, has consistently talked about is the life of the paintings, the movement of the paintings, and the intimate embrace of the natural world and the landscape by the imagery. She's uh, been down into this area. She's, I think, in the in the area of like 85 years of age. She said she's been going down into this uh, Sierra de San Francisco 50 years, about twice a year on, uh, on the mulas with the um, burrows in tether and consistently had a never-ending or endlessly engaging sort of romance with these remarkable paintings. And uh, Eve Ewing is just a wonder what a treasure, right? Yeah, she's she's amazing. And her friendship with Eleni Moore, who spent many, many summers away from her. She used to teach art in Southern California in one of the universities, one of the colleges. And her passion for laying on her back in a cave in <laughs> the months of hot, hot summer, just to capture on in her own artistic ways, the the scale of art that that's in these these mountain ranges. And she's done a great tribute to capturing some of the, the movement and to scale. Just some great stuff. And so I was introduced to Eleni via Eve. And those two women are, are for, forces of nature for being some people who just so appreciate what that what those hidden canyons have captured and held for us. And so another woman who has been a, a great 
a resource and who was the main person to be able to put into existence the ability to to have the visitation of this art in the canyon and to have it be so protected and to have it become a world heritage site. And that would be Lucero Gutierrez, who lives in Los Cabos and has made her life, her life work has been to protect the rock art in these canyons. And she's done an amazing job working with the local people, the vaqueros, the families, to make it be a true world heritage existence of a place in the world that is so special that the patrimony of of this ranchero culture has benefited by, we use the local cowboys and their burros and their mules to ride into the canyons. They take care of us on the trail. They watch out for us. They take us to the sites and in some of the more remote areas, which they have labeled as level three, and that would be in San Gregorio, the San Gregorio visitation. We also have a INA or Department of History and Anthropology custodian along with us, just as a little extra protection. There, there are no signage and no walkways to protect the, the understory of the cave, caves, and so that, that requires an extra level of attention from the Department of History and Anthropology. So there, there's the canyon, which is Santa Teresa, that has walkways and signage and the trails are kept up. But let me tell you, and as you know, Alan, you've been on some of those trails. They are rocky and slippery. So we do want to make sure that people are aware of that ahead of time. It's a steep, deep canyon. And although there are some creature comforts where we camp in the bottom of the canyon and one of the camps, and if we get to move down canyon to the wilderness camp, it is rocky. And so you are going to scramble to get up to some of the sites, but we always do have our va- vaquero guides along to help us. And the vaqueros helped me. They uh, drug me up. I was the... Uh... <laughs> I was the one that needed personal attention, and they were kind enough to get me up there to see those uh, fabulous, fabulous images. Yeah, we got you there. (laughs) Well, we just went through the the first segment, just rather remarkable. And in this next segment, I think we'll begin delving a little deeper into the subject matter and the characterization of what we know about these remarkable paintings. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Oh, welcome back to the 
Rock Art Podcast, episode 71. And we're in segment two. We're graced and honored and blessed to have Trudy Angel, who's been riding the ropes and reins and moving into Baja, California for nigh on 25 years and having a fabulous time at it. Trudy, why don't you uh, share a bit about the adventure and nature of riding the trails into the uh, Grand Canyon of Mexico into the Sierra de San Francisco. (laughs) Okay. You know, often I take people into the mountains. People want to sign up and see the rock art in this amazing, spectacular world heritage rock art, Great Mural Rock Art. And when they come out of the canyon, beyond even the, the majestic mural art, they're coming out of the canyon saying, wow, the cowboys, the, those vaqueros, the, the mules, the trails, <laughs> the canyon, the scenery. The burrows, everything. Yeah, they just can't believe the kind of other reality worldview that these people have who live out there in the backcountry, their skills and their abilities. And those guys who take us down into the canyons are just super amazing. They're they're muleteers. They know how to pack a donkey. We've even packed guitars, guitars and ukuleles on, on the top of the carga, and they're very gentle with those. They just are so knowledgeable. Yeah. So what, the way I've described it is, first of all, you're going into a place that there, in essence, are no roads for motor vehicles. Am I correct? Yeah, you're correct. So we drive... Yeah, we drive from Loreto up to San Ignacio, the small village of San Ignacio. And the following day, we drive up into the beautiful escarpments of the Sierra San Francisco. And then you get to meet your mules and meet your cowboy guides and the donkeys that do all the work for us that carry the loads down into the canyon. So it's, a, it's an otherworldly kind of, a, of an experience. You're going to get a huge cultural hit with uh, coming on one of these trips and just a huge respect for how these people live in the outback and how they've integrated us into their lifestyle. It's really wonderful. So you get on the back of a mule. It's a mula or a mulo. <laughs> but, but I think many of the time that they are... Are they female mostly or no? The mulas? No, there are female mules and male mules. Okay. And those male mules, you know the word macho? Quien es yes. macho? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, macho is actually just the word for male, M-A-L-E. But okay. the male mules are called machos and the female mules are called mulas. I did not know that. Okay, okay. Interesting. So when uh, I experienced this, I was on the back of a mula and... The uh, trail is about as wide as my arm. Am I correct or is it wider? Mm-hmm. How wide is it? Oh, come on. It's wider. It just, it just seemed like that. It just seemed <laughs> like that. So, but somehow these mules can navigate this trail tremendously and they, they are confident and have a, a, a good sense of it. Now we go from the rim of the canyon and descend. How far, how fast? 
Well, it's about 1,500 feet down to the first camp on day one. And if you've been into maybe into the Grand Canyon on Muleback, it's rockier than that. And there are some there are some places, Alan, I, I do give you credit there. Yes, you're you're standing at the edge of a precipice and you're looking down. But you know what? I have a favorite saying. I say, trust your mule's feet. Those mules don't want to roll down that canyon wall and they don't want to take you with them. So actually they're they're the perfect animal for this back country of Baja where it's so rocky and so steep. Because and because they're a cross between a donkey and a horse, they're good and large, so you're not dragging your feet, of course. Mm-mm. And but they're they're sturdy, but they have the donkey trait of being super super well balanced on rocky trails. Yes, and and I can I can assure assure my uh, colleagues and the visitors and participants in these tours that those mules are are sort of you know our our lifeblood, and it's it's rather remarkable to be on the back of a mule on these trails going through these deserts. Now, when we say deserts, sometimes we think about the California deserts or some of the other deserts that that don't have much in the way of vegetation. That's not the way that the Baja experience is, is it? No, not in the Sierra San Francisco. It's one of the most gorgeous mountain ranges because you're starting out at the top of the mesas where there's a lot of wide open space, but you have these deep, steep canyons and we drop down into those canyons. And so they have water courses through them, pools of water, beautiful palm trees, there's mesquite, of course, and there are some very unique endemic plants up in the higher country as well. And so you really get an experience that it is cult- cultural and ethnobotany. We can teach a little bit of that along the trail as well. And people with interest in the ethnobotany are really surprised to see, to hear and understand how, how the indigenous people lived without agriculture and without architecture, basically the coaching me in that area. So as we uh, continue to ride on the uh, mulas and the uh, male mules as well. Machos. The machos. We descend the canyon and then uh, we get down to the bottoms and we uh, ride along those watercourses for a while. And then we have to go up the side of the canyon again, don't we? (laughs) Right. So most of the time um, on those on a four day trip, let's say four days and three nights in the canyon, you're camping and we're in a flat camp spot in the bottom of the canyon. But then to get up to the rock art locations, then there's uh, some trails and scrambles up some some sides of the canyon. But there are trails. And so most of the time people say, oh, my gosh, I don't think I can do this because I can't ride a mule all day. We don't actually ride the mules all no. day. The first day is like three hours into the canyon. And then we might ride for an hour and a half down to where we tie the mules and then hike up to some some of the rock art sites, Cueva Pintada, Cueva de las Flechas. And then ride back to camp. So they're they're short. It's rather amazing. And the the places where the rock art is are in these rock shelters that are often on the rim rocks, just below the rim rocks, and they are made of of, of volcanic tuff. And you would never have guessed that these are the canvases for these remarkable 
many colored paintings, but they are. And the geology plays a part in the story of each uh, painting. And it was uh, Eve Ewing that taught me this. And she's, she's one of the pioneers in understanding sort of the geological nature of how these canvases of, of volcanic rock shelters serve as sort of the homes for these remarkable archaeological sites and paintings. Maybe you can say a few things about that. Yes, it's been fun to travel with Eve over the years to some of her favorite sites. And she's always pointing out how the the animals are moving in a certain background of the rock, how they're running straight up a crack in the uh, fissure in the in the face of the the rock overhang and and she does a great job of determining what what those what the symbolism might be in that particular painting in a particular cave and because of the the structure of the of the rock wall yeah and you can and you can see as you study that canvas that rock canvas that volcanic interface that some of the major fissures, the major cracks of where the water will run become sort of the central conduits for the movements of this panoply of, of animals that are rushing, rushing at, at a death pace out of that particular panel. And it is amazing to see the movement and flurry and vitality of the animals in counterpoint to the stability and stationary nature of the human figures that exist. They call them static figures. They are full frontal and often have their hands towards the sky in an adherent posture, I would argue. And the animals uh, continue to move, yet the, the humankind, both men, women, and even children for that matter, appear to be in homage or prayer or some sort of a, a posture relating to almost a deification of the uh, animal people, as it were, and perhaps relating to asking for their deities to provide them with a way to continue in the face of adversity. And one of those resources that they need most critically is water, water and rain. Yeah, right. So the animals and the deer figures running up the cracks and bringing down the rain, I remember it was one of the papers that Eve Ewing wrote, and it has specifically to do with, with that concept of the how the animals are going skyward and in praying for the rain to come down the down into their world because it's just such a necessary thing in those desert environments. And it's so unpredictable. Is that is that correct? Whether whether they receive the rain or receive enough rain to uh, produce a uh, reasonable crop and be able to harvest the necessary fruit and seeds and have the animals that they need to live. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. And so all of those desert foods, are they are so reliant on those desert foods since they had no agriculture in their own culture at that time until the missionaries did arrive. And so that ancient art seems to reflect that. Is that uh, main food, the one that's called the joyous food, called pitaya? Am I correct? Is that the uh, fruit of the cactus that they harvest? Right. There were different fruits, cactus fruit that would that they would harvest in the summer times and in the fall. And then the seeds also, the pods from various plants. And one of the one one of the things that, that they harvested a lot were actually roots from various vines that grew in the canyons as well. So they had a, a repertoire of, of foraging and harvesting certain plants. And then I guess the hunters would try to acquire either deer or I would I would presume bighorn sheep or other smaller game, but I uh, I think those were the the major targets. Uh, am I correct? Yeah, and it's interesting to note that there have been no, or at least no place that I have been in the Sierra de San Francisco. Do you see any particular pictographs of the? of plant life. It's all animal. It's all game. It's all turtles and whales and pinnipeds. And then the deer and the, the pronghorn or bighorn sheep in the area. And those are the most, those are the largest of the paintings on the walls and the ones that seem to have the most consistent movement going in one direction or another. So in different cave rock art sites, it's really interesting to see. Eve noted one time when we were in the San Gregorio area into the the site that Harry Crosby named in, in the book, The Cave Paintings of Baja California, as just San Gregorio One, mm-hmm. And Eve noted that all of the deer figures in that cave are running up canyon. So she asked our cowboy guides what they might think about that. And when they put their minds to it, they said, well, you know, when you do, when you're hunting, what you do when you're out there is to run the deer up canyon. And Mm. so we came up with that concept that this was an interesting site because all of the animals were running in one direction and that was up canyon. So there was some kind of concept there of of what that could mean as far as the storytelling in that painting. Absolutely. Remarkable. Well, second segment. (laughs) I think in the final one, we'll try to put a bow on it. See you guys on the flip-flop in the next segment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey, welcome back. This is your host, uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with your Rock Hard podcast, number 71 in the third segment, final third. We've got Trudy Angel of Sadlin South talking about the fabulous great mural rock art of Baja, California and the Sierra de San Francisco. Trudy, tell us a bit about this organization called Ina and also the types of resources that potentially we could in fact connect with on the uh, tours of this remarkable world-class phenomenon. Okay. Well, the department of, called INAH, I-N-A-H, is Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia, so National Institute of Anthropology and History in Mexico. And in the early 19, 1990s, a woman named Lucero Gutierrez took it upon herself, single-handedly almost, to organize both the families in the ranches of the Sierra de San Francisco because it is such a highly concentrated area and easy to protect. She took it upon herself to make this a World Heritage Site. And beyond the normal roots that people go to to go see the World Heritage Rock Art, the, the most popular one is the Santa Teresa Canyon, which we'll visit twice in the month of March on the craft trips, and the San Gregorio area to the north of there, which we'll also visit twice during the, during the craft trips this, this year. There are so many other trails and canyons and pieces of rock art that are rarely visited on the eastern, southeastern side of the whole mountain range is the Santa Marta area. And so another very worthwhile visit to into Serpiente Cave. And I'm sure Ryan and Christine and others, other representatives of craft will probably want to set up another trip into that area. But there are so many other routes that can be had into canyons to go visit beautiful petroglyph areas. There's a whole canyon to the northeast of the San Gregorio Ranch area that it takes another day and a half to ride ride to, and you can make a camp. There's plenty of water. There are tinajas in the canyon, which means holding tanks of water, and just a whole canyon to go exploring. It's like a treasure hunt just to go and find all of the beautiful petroglyphs in that area. There are other areas down farther from the site of the La Pintada and Flechas, the most visited area, that are rarely visited and and go by the old mission site of San Pablo. And so often you might hear the Santa Teresa Canyon being referred to as San Pablo. And because the ranch called San Pablo is at the head of that water course and the old mission site, excuse me, the ranch of Santa Teresa is at the head of the canyon and the mission site of San Pablo is at the 
bottom towards the mouth of that canyon. And so it gets two different names at times. And then there's a, a route that we do in a, a sometimes on whole circle loop trips. And that would take, uh, for a craft trip, it might end up being a super long one. It might be 12 days by the time you fly into Loreto and get yourself up to the, get ourselves up to the rock art area, do a loop trip for eight days and then come back. But I know, you know, one thing that happens is people often come down for these shorter four day, three night camping trips, see one Canyon, and then they want to come back for more. They're hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and there is, there's just so much to explore. It could be a whole month. You could take a whole month riding mules. Right, right. But the petroglyphs themselves are, in, in and of themselves are remarkable, are they not? Yeah. Because they uh, sometimes have, sometimes they have the uh, similarities and differences with respect to the, the paintings. And those uh, petroglyphs certainly... Uh, go back even further in time than the paintings. Right, exactly. And so you don't see a lot of the the great mural of style of petroglyph in the Sierra de San Francisco. I've seen it in other parts around the peninsula, other places. It doesn't have much to do with that. It's more mm, concentric circles. It's more, well, there's a beautiful rock, if you recall, near just down canyon from La Pintada, mm-hmm. that is called Piedra de Chuy, because one of our favorite guides, who is works for Ina as a custodian now, discovered that as he was looking for a lost mule, and no mm-hmm. one had ever come upon this beautiful rock with a beautiful, gorgeous patina on it, suggesting very, very ancient peckings into this rock, and, and it's a gorgeous sample of the petroglyph style in the in the range well what we found is when you uh, see those the uh, desert varnished petroglyphs that are on basalt and when you can see that that varnish appear pretty much the same color as the glyphs themselves they've been revarnished through the uh, iron manganese coating that we're talking about a, a time span not extensive in terms of we, we do know confidently when those who have the ability to sort of test and estimate the ages of those images. We're looking at 10,000 years of prehistory, which is absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it's very fun, very exciting. Even on the uh, loop trip that we've done into Paral Canyon, where the Serpiente site is, on the southeastern part, we can also go up and around to the top of a mesa. And of course, it's near water holes where you're going to find the, the highest concentration, at least in this range, of the the petroglyph art. Right, because they'll be concentrated around the water yeah. sources and the natural the natural tanks. Now, I understand that uh, some of the, in, the people who live in this area actually serve as liaison protectors or, um, you know, partly uh, deal with or, or help out and are compensated for that kind of relationship in terms of being an interface with the visitors. Am I correct? Yeah. And Ina has designed that, uh, Lucero Gutierrez specifically, but the Department of History and Anthropology has designed that 
designed two sides of the mountains, let's say the northwestern side where the Cueva Pintada and Cueva de las Flechas, the, the mostly uh, most visited level two piece of rock art. There are different levels and so different guides on the guide role in the Sierra de San Francisco are authorized to take people into different sites. So in order to make this spectacular rock art available to the general public as well, for people who can't really or really don't want to get on a mule and ride down into a canyon, you can visit one rock art site on the northwestern side near the, the village of San Francisco de la Sierra, and that would be Cueva del Raton. And That's right. so people, yeah, you can get there by bus or by local, not not a bus per se, but a local taxi van kind of a situation. You can drive your own vehicle there, hire a local guide, sign in with the INA coordinator in the village of San Francisco, and then take just a short little day trip out to one site where it only requires you to go up a little flight of stairs. But it's protected, very well protected, because it is so accessible. It really necessitates that they actually put fences around those areas so that it won't be vandalized. And that's just a wonderful thing that has happened, to be able to have it be more accessible to most people. And then there's a a beautiful site on the southeastern side in the Santa Marta area, which requires from the town of San Ignacio in the central part of the the heart of the peninsula, basically. You can access that by a couple of hour car ride, signing in with the custodian in the Santa Marta side of the canyon or the, the mountain range. And then local guides will take you there either by mule or on foot, and you can hike for a couple of hours to get up to an amazing site called El Palmarito. And so there's that's level one. That's available to be able to go and visit some spectacular rock art without doing a camping trip and to get there mostly on foot or by car. And then there's the level two where it's protected in the Santa Teresa Canyon, for instance, by having wooden walkways that have been built with railings and everything. So you can actually walk along Cueva La Pintada for 200 yards and admire all of the the art in that site. So really, so really, what the Mexican people have done, what uh, Lucero has done, and and others, is make these paintings available to the general public in a way that protects them, and yet allows them to be visited and appreciated. And and this is in a way that is a little different from what we do domestically, even in the United States. They take it one step further and they have provided almost a personalized connection to these images, to these sites, through those uh, site stewards and through the, the protective nature and interactive nature of how, how well engineered and managed these particular sites are. It certainly is a wondrous way of of managing these treasures, don't you think? Yeah. And the cowboys, the vaqueros, their families are so hospitable. When you go into those areas, they 
you actually sometimes ride past in San Gregorio. In the case of San Gregorio, they've built some amenities for us near the little uh, garden campsite in the San Gregorio area. You get to camp in, in there in the orange grove, just down from the ranch, down the hill from the ranch, and with a little stream going through it. So it's a beautiful area. And the people at the ranch have been always been very hospitable. Amazing. They do some great leather work at that ranch. So there's more history to be absorbed even beyond the, the rock art in the area. And definitely the people who live in that mountain range really do count on visitation to these sites as part of their economy, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So what's what's rather remarkable is we're seeing sort of this intimate dynamic between uh, cultural resources, rock art sites, prehistory, anthropology, and the uh, local people who are uh, challenged yet collaborators and working with Ina and... Lucero, and uh, others in terms of researching, protecting, and interpreting the sites. Justin Highland, years ago, did his PhD dissertation on these sites, and he, uh, he worked with Lucero in terms of publishing a number of syntheses about the Sierra de San Francisco and understanding great mural rock art. And it's, it's been a, a wondrous collaboration and I've I can see that from from that kind of relationship both from the American side and the Mexican side there's been a um, tremendous interest there's been several PhD dissertations come out of the study of the great mural rock art and it's been quite revelatory interesting and adding to our understanding of really forager hunter-gatherer cosmology religion and religious practices in a remarkable part of the world and uh, endlessly engaging obviously and one that uh, has been very helpful to me to really begin to understand and appreciate this kind of relationship does that make sense, Trudy? Yeah, and it's such a unique area with the cosmology and energetic side of things. I, I will tell you a little anecdote of my own. It was very interesting for me one time to have a friend of mine call me up one time and ask me, Trudy, what do you know about the area of San Ignacio and that area. Are you very familiar with that? I said, yeah, boy, do I know. I do know a lot. She said, well, you know, I'm. this is interesting. There's going to be, do you know what grid lines are? And I said, well, not really. She said, well, they're the energetic lines that uh-huh. encircle the earth and there are certain areas. And so I just need to tell you, I'm somehow drawn to this grid line number 17. Grid line number 17 tends to run straight north from San Ignacio, this area. So I'm wondering what you know about that. This grid line is called the plumed serpent. Oh, my word. And I said, you know, that grid line actually runs through then (laughs) a rock art site that has a serpent 
with deer horns. So, wow, what kind of energy? How, how did that happen? The plumed serpent grid line goes right basically through the serpent cave in the southeast side of that sierra. So it just opened up a whole new world of vision for me of of how cosmic the understanding or the lack of, of understanding that we have of what the painters might have known or felt or understood energetically in a particular area. Very, very interesting when that little light bulb came on for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we... We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the ancestors of the natives and those that were artisans who took the trouble to capture the uh, cosmic sensibilities and bring them down to earth so we could appreciate them. And with that, we're out of time. (laughs) Thank you, Trudy. Okay. And thank you all listeners of the Rock Art Podcast. See you next week in a brand new show. See you on the uh, flip-flop. Mula, ha! (laughs) Good job, Alan. You really learned that. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.